trying to get used to greeting half of our people. We'll get used to it. Today, we are resuming the new series in 2 Corinthians by continuing to introduce this letter by looking at the Apostle Paul's introduction in verses 1 and 2. As we finished the 1 Corinthians series at the end of May, most of us hopefully came away with a better sense of the serious consequences a church can face when the people of the church become more concerned about their own personal welfare than the welfare of their brothers and sisters in Christ. We also should have recognized the tremendous God-given grace and courage it took for Paul and Timothy and others to continue to love, care for, and instruct these people, even while many in the church were brazenly treating one another with contempt, and many ignored Paul's teaching and even personally attacked him and his credentials as an apostle of Christ. It seemed even easier for these troublemakers to criticize Paul when he had continued his missionary journey and been mostly away from them for about a year. Much of 1 Corinthians was about Paul urging them to be unified with one another. But now, as he writes another letter to them, after finding out more about their spiritual ups and downs, his appeal to them this time includes some strong urging to be unified with him and his ministry. In other words, in this second letter to the Corinthians, it's time for him to defend his calling from Christ to be one of Christ's apostles. From the beginning to end, we see Paul defending his apostleship vigorously. Why? Because not only did the Corinthian believers seem to easily wander back into their worldly ways of thinking and living, they also were very susceptible to being led astray by false teachers who seemed to crave influence and power for themselves. In other words, these people were hurting badly and may have thought, well, that's just the way it is. But Paul deeply cares for them. And I hope you remember how very much the atmosphere that these believers were called to live in is eerily similar to what we're hearing and seeing from so many people in our own land today. Therefore, we are very much being called to live amongst more confusion and discord than any of us can ever remember. Looking back, the 60s looked tame by comparison. Those of you that are too young to know that, just take our word for it. The challenge for us as a church and as individuals belonging to Christ is not to lose heart, but to recognize who we are in Christ, knowing that he is worthy of being followed and being lived for. 
What we see Paul addressing and explaining even here in the first chapter is a way of thinking about what it means to be a Christian. That in some ways may seem very foreign to us and even counterintuitive. Why? Because let's be honest, no matter what we've been going through, nothing's approached what's been happening the last few months for most of us for a long time. Wars excluded. But we will not back away from Paul's words to us in this letter. We will embrace them and gird ourselves to find our peace and joy in God and the Savior, not in the trappings of a world that is changing so much right before our very eyes. Now, let's be honest, COVID-19 is actually an in-our-face reality check that's showing every one of us where our hearts really are and what our hopes really are fixed on. And it's brutally honest, is it not? All of us are tired of it. But it's only taken three or four months to make us see how very much we are so used to controlling every part of our lives, depending on our own resources and abilities and to stay afloat, maneuvering and wheeling and dealing. So a question is, have we reached the point yet of bowing before our Maker and confessing how much we tend to depend on everything else but Him in our day-to-day life? Has he gotten our attention yet? These circumstances seem new to us, but anyone who has studied history knows that the vast majority of it reflects the universal struggle of surviving hard circumstances. Even our most recent ancestors faced many such situations. We are called to depend on the Lord as we struggle in the struggle. We have to be willing to ask two huge questions as we walk through 2 Corinthians together. One is, if we become bitter because we now live in a time we never even dreamt would or could happen, will we still serve and love God? And second, if he doesn't give us what we want, when we want it, and how we want it, will we abandon him and go after whatever we can get? These are not just abstract questions anymore, are they? In the first half of chapter 1, Paul sets the stage for everything that follows. So we will read it each week until we get to the second half of chapter 1. I am smiling. Even though today, we will only go through verses 1 and 2. If you're able, please stand as I read 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 11. 
I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Paul's introduction and greeting looks very similar to how he begins all of his letters, does it not? But I'd like us to take a serious look at these words today in verses 1 and 2 instead of just passing right over them. Outside of most business professional communication, if any of you still write letters, I almost want to ask you to raise your hand, but I don't think there'd be very many. Any of you still write letters to someone, there's usually a short introductory greeting that we use. Dear so-and-so. Even if you're not particularly fond of whoever you're writing, do you still write dear In the Mediterranean world, the usual practice was for the writer to first identify himself and those to whom he was writing. Paul's Jewish name was Saul, but he was a Roman citizen, and his work took him all over the Roman Empire, so he used his Roman name that changed after he became a Christian to being known as Paul. Notice that he also identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. It was customary for the letter writer to indicate their standing or occupation. So this letter's status just went sky high because this means that this letter came with divine authority. 
Paul wanted to remind them from the outset that they should take everything he wrote very seriously because this letter was from one of Christ's apostles. Well, what is an apostle? Who is an apostle? Apostle is a person sent on a mission by and with the authority of someone else, in this case, Christ Jesus. There are many other criteria for an apostle. There's not any true apostles in our day. There were the first apostles, and then that was it, because they accomplished the purpose that God had for them. One of the main ones being the writing and the canonization of the books of the Bible. And Paul adds that he was an apostle here, notice this, by the will of God. This is how he began 1 Corinthians 2. He's reminding the Corinthians once again, and they needed to be reminded of these things quite often, as we've already learned from the first letter, of his own story about how he came to Christ and became an apostle. Saul was strongly antagonistic to Jesus and his messianic claims in his younger days. In Acts chapter 9, just in verses 1 and 2, we get this account. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, i.e. Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In chapter 22, to be punished to the death. But God had other plans for Saul. On that road to Damascus, Saul had an encounter with the risen Christ, which totally changed and reoriented his life. He then belonged to Jesus and was appointed by Christ to be the last apostle. Remember what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Christ, appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. On that road to Damascus, his own desires and will were uppermost in his mind. He was on a mission to arrest, beat, throw into prison, and put some people to death who just believed in Jesus as the Messiah. But, as he writes here in verse 1, the will of God, not his will, was what determined his salvation and his calling as an apostle of Christ. So what does that tell us? We see a man here whose life was utterly changed and redirected in every respect. His heart was changed. He became a new creature in Christ. His purpose in life changed. His reason for living changed. His name changed. He now gratefully belonged to Christ and not himself. 
And he was given a monumental task by Christ, who was his Lord and faithful provider in this task. Next, we see Timothy's name mentioned, reminding us that this younger man joined Paul in his missionary work at Corinth shortly after it began. He is with Paul at the time of this writing, which is why his name appears here. We find out in chapter 4, verse 17, that Timothy made another visit to the Corinthians, so the Corinthians knew him very well. He is mentioned in the first verse of five other letters of Paul, First and Second Thessalonians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. By placing Timothy's name in the first verse of his letters, Paul is trying to, he's meaning to encourage the strengthening of the relationship between these churches and Timothy. Because that's not guaranteed. Just look at how some of those people feel about Paul. Besides greatly respecting Timothy, Paul identifies him as our brother. This is a subtle reminder of the unity in Christ of those who belong to him. One of Paul's main themes here. What he wants for these believers to understand, know, and live. And this was a particular problem for the Corinthian believers. And Paul addressed this over and over and over again in 1 Corinthians. Also in verse 1 we read, To the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Now we've got to remember that Paul's commission as an apostle was not to one church only, but to serve many churches, especially mainly Gentile churches. Now we can derive from this fact that Paul intended this letter to be widely read. Now, that sounds great at first. But if you were the Corinthians and you knew that this letter was circulating around the whole area of the province of Achaia and all these other people out in the boonies didn't necessarily know all the facts of what was going on in the big city, but they would know the facts after reading this letter. That's an interesting point. Now he says this at the end of the verse. He says, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Well, again, do you guys remember where Achaia is? Achaia refers to the southern part of Greece, which is a peninsula connected to the central part of Greece by the Isthmus of Corinth. Corinth was a city on that little isthmus connecting the peninsula to the mainland, which is why shipping and why it was such a metropolitan place. The city of Corinth was the capital of this Roman province. Now we should also recognize the importance of recognizing how the Bible uses the word church. And what I mean by that 
is there was a place in Matthew 16, verse 18, where Jesus said this. Jesus said, I will build my church. And Paul here uses the phrase, church of God. See the connection? And he did this several times in 1 Corinthians. If the same church can be described as God's church and Christ's church, what does that say about Paul's view of Christ? Very simply, Paul was very clear about the deity of Christ. Also of note, by referring to the wider area of believers this area of this letter was addressed to, Paul is letting those believers who lived in the same area but not in the big city, he's letting them know that they were just as important status-wise as the Corinthians. Now we see his missionary strategy over and over again. When he had a chance, he'd go to the capital of the biggest city in a province and see if God wants to start a big church there, which would then be able to send out others to the rural, more rural areas. He didn't just go to the big cities as he traveled. He went through many smaller ones as well. What about this word saints? Paul uses this word to make the distinction mainly between believers and the world around them. But that's not how we have looked at it and how people have gone wrong down through church history seeing this. Because so often the mistake is to make the distinction between believers in the church, those that are more spiritual and gifted versus those who are less spiritual and maybe not doing as much of which those distinctions are questionable and derogatory and very dangerous in the first place, are they not? So you see what he's doing? This is a distinction he wants to make between believers, you either are or you aren't, and the world around them, which they are having trouble being distinct from. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, he put it this way, which is very interesting. 1 Corinthians 1-2 said, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon Jesus. See the connection? The terms saints and sanctify designate them as set apart by God for himself. It doesn't mean spotless or perfect in character, but rather that they had experienced God's saving grace, which is true of every genuine believer. Paul told the Philippians that he was confident that he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus in Philippians 1.6. This obvious, obviously implies that no Christian is perfected completely in this life. But many branches of people calling themselves Christians in some churches down through church history have obviously gone off the main highway to this false teaching that you can be perfected in this life. 
So, the point here we need to make is, so how do you think of yourself? Be honest. How do you identify yourself in your heart of hearts? Because this is the crux of the whole issue. What is your true identity? If you do not or cannot think of yourself as being set apart by God for himself, then you may be desperately in need of a complete thinking overhaul, which Paul will gladly supply. The things we all are feeling right now, every one of us, with the constant overload of troubling images and videos and the hate-filled speech and accusations and the angry demands and the outright violence and chaos are testing each one of us in some very uncomfortable ways. We will not fare well if we do not gird ourselves with the basic truths of God's word, we will be easily influenced and misdirected. And we've already seen a whole lot of the consequences of not thinking biblically in the lives of these Corinthians, didn't we? Already. Who had a very hard time seeing themselves as being set apart by God for himself. That definition, that identity immediately does what? It makes us strip off everything that we depend on first before we depend upon God because we belong to him. Are we willing to honestly consider whether we are embracing our God-given new identity in Christ are we embracing that I believe that the time we are in God uses these times to make us face this very question he strips things away that we have become used to and dependent upon even things we love and like that are not necessarily bad but many of the good things and we gripe, and we get bitter, and we fall into despair so easily. We need to just admit that and go on. His mercies are new when? Every morning. That's a great way of thinking about it. One reason the Lord calls us to worship together on the day that he rose from the dead with a body of believers is because he knows that we need him to fortify our faith and hope and understanding on a regular basis. At least every week. Have we ever really thought about that before? Do you realize that much of the history of our country 
was believers living out in the middle of nowhere, i.e. Amarillo is a great example, where a town had to be a lot less than one day away on a horse. And when those people came to Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose, they didn't get stilted and they only had two, usually, options in clothes. Work clothes that they wore every day the rest of the week and one little better that they wore on Sunday. To go worship together out of their routines. So how special was the neighbor that lived five miles away across the fence lines? How special was it to see other believers once a week, every week, that was possible? They couldn't call them. They didn't use smoke signals. They could ride like the wind. And you can imagine how special that must have been people that didn't have the things that we are used to having, people that had to depend upon God for everything, the weather, the threatening storms, the heat, the frost, things that destroyed their livelihood, just like that. God knows, he's always known that we forget so quickly who we are, that we need to meet together to lift him up, see him for who he really is on a regular basis. One example of how God has encouraged us is the last two weeks when Blake took us through Revelation 21. The whole chapter in two weeks, it wasn't a long one. Was that powerful? To see what God is doing and will do for those he has made his own is remarkable beyond words. We saw how God is in the process now of making us ready for our eternal future, i.e. that's our identity. Do we actually realize that's what's going on now? It's not all dark. It's not all crazy. It's not all without purpose. It's not all without hope. God has a reason for letting us go through these times. He's making us ready for something so much better we can't even picture it, think about it, or even know how to explain it. Are we cooperating with that? Just that one idea puts a whole new perspective on everything going on right now that troubles us. Everything. We saw how God's presence with us now is just a foretaste of being with him forever. You know how great it is to have someone you love and trust going through the tough stuff with you? How much more special is that now? you don't have someone like that it is hard well do we have any notion at all of one who is with us always he never sleeps or slumbers do we make the most of that we saw how the peace he gives us now in the midst 
of the struggles that so burden us only points to the complete, I've got to let that word sink in, the complete wiping away of every tear, sorrow, crying, pain that will happen, and he'll do that when he does return and make all things new. So I don't know about you, but I want to say in front of all you guys, thank you, Blake. That passage rocked my world. And do you think Blake just threw a dart at God's word that hit that particular chapter? You can ask him. Or did God in his mercy, grace, and love for us put the burden of that chapter on his heart? At the right time. We needed that passage as we came back here to worship together, split up. So that we we would look at being able to be half together instead of griping about all the empty chairs and spaces and weird things on our face and everything else. In case you guys haven't noticed, I operate mostly on a glass being half empty. Which is good sometimes, but not often. So we look at the very familiar greeting of blessing that Paul uses at the start of this letter in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, all of a sudden, this is not just something we just say. All of a sudden, this takes on some really incredible, deep, comforting meaning. What is grace? Probably almost everybody in this room can immediately say it's God's unmerited favor. But do we realize that this grace is the basis of everything Christians enjoy in Christ? Think about this. It is for Christ's sake that we are accepted by God and there is absolutely nothing that we have done or are doing or even promise or hope to do which can be a substitute for what Christ did by grace. Acceptance with God is received by faith, not earned by anything that we think will merit it. And this is why we put our faith in Christ alone. Our identity in Christ was won by God's grace. And now what about this word peace? Well, this is a translation of the Hebrew greeting, guess what? Shalom. And it's still used by Jews today. This is a lot more than good day type of greeting. And it instead signifies the absence of tension between two parties and the presence of goodwill as the overflow and completeness of blessing. 
you catch that? We say hello, we mean it. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're just being polite. We try to mean it. We smile more. It's hard to see whether you mean it or not right now. I'm taking it for granted you do. Your eyes twinkle, that's a good sign. But do you see how this word carries so much more weight? It's not just a greeting. It signifies the absence of tension between two parties. And the presence of goodwill between those two parties. And that's what Paul is wishing to these people that literally have driven him crazy with their problems. But he loves them. He knows that Christ paid the price for them. But what's underneath that? He knows that he persecuted the church before God ran him down, literally, and saved his soul. So how else can he look at them? They're not a project. They're not something he can check off and then go get a better job at another church. You see how deep this is? He deeply cares for them to know the grace of God and them having peace, which Christ has won for them. They just seem to shove it aside. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we need you always, but especially in these troubling times. And you know exactly what that means for each one of us and for this church. Gird us up. Keep preparing us. Open our eyes to who you have made us to be and what you have called us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for a very well-known benediction that is also the verse we just read. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Remember, we still exit row by row.